Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on the panel, we have Adi Eingar. Hello. And Alan Weimar. Hello. And Sasha Wolf, that's me. I'm back. <gasps> yeah, I was, on, I was on a business trip for a few weeks, so, so I kind of bowed out a bit. It's just a panelist episode this week. No guests, no special anything. But I, I heard a rumor which said that, that Adi's going to go on a rant. I'm frequently surprised at how many companies are running their apps in production without any way of knowing when things go wrong. Or who are running them in production and not really having a way of knowing where things are slowing down. That's why I recommend that people use a service like AppSignal. AppSignal plugs into your application seamlessly, whether you're using Rails or Phoenix or something else, and provides you a way of knowing when things go wrong, when things are going slow, and what other problems your application may be facing so that you can fix them and provide a seamless user experience for those who are using your app. So whether you're starting a new app or working on an existing app, you should check out AppSignal and see how it can work for you. Go to AppSignal.com. That's A-P-P-S-I-G-N-A-L.com. So, Adi, Adi, what are you going to rant about? Yeah, yeah. So, I was telling Alan and Sasha before we started recording that, weirdly, recently, I've had few instances where some really, otherwise you'd think of them as established Elixir companies, have really weird patterns, like way beyond what you would expect from like a legacy right like especially with like storing using processes in a weird way and instead of just saying wait i'll give an example of one i had yesterday where this company they had these stack of fun- function calls right and each function was doing something and which kind of like the last part of that was a change set call to create a struct eventually they needed to change the entire pipeline such that some of those functions would depend on you know a user which you know probably comes in the front end somehow, I don't know. So the solution for that, instead of changing the signature of all the functions to take a user as an argument, was to, before starting the pipeline, put the user in the process, using process or put, so using the dictionary of the process. And functions that need users would use that process as dictionary to get, <laughs> to get the user's value and calculate whatever they need to calculate, right? It's pretty crazy. Like, obviously, big, things, right? Big, big reasons why I want to do it is like if you run it concurrently, right? If you run it, if you paralyze it, like what if you decide like, okay, this, some of the functions need to be spawned into a task, process.get will not give you that. What if you decide to not link the processes? Then the leader itself might be a different process. There's no way for you to get the state without having the pit. Anyway, I was just like mind boggled by this. And there's a few other instances I can talk that more about that, but would love to get Alan and Sasha, your thoughts on this. I was I was like, I did not know what to say. I was literally trying to, because my, my instinct was like first try to give people the command for the doubt, assume that they are smart people. Why would smart people make this decision? And I could not come up with a single reason. To be honest, like when, when, the way you described it now, like earlier, it's a little bit different, but now I, I feel it smells like something somebody would do who is familiar with having a setup of like a global variable or something or like a thing where they can put content and then say, okay, in this function, I'm just going to access this thing over here and load it from there, right? Right. It, it really looks, seems like something somebody might, might be building who is really not familiar with the functional paradigm and also how you would usually build those things on the beam. I've worked with people which were very good at getting stuff done, but they really stopped there. Like they built something, it worked, done. <laughs> <laughs> and this this smells like it, you know. And I'm 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 not even putting any kind of like here valuation on this. I'm not saying this is bad or this is good because depending on the task at hand, it's really good to have 
people who are comfortable, they, they, they know their tools, they build the thing, they're done. If it's not a highly critical part of, of, part of a product, so be it, right? But sometimes you get stuff like that. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe to ask or give you a question back, Adi, where would you expect to see the process dictionary be used? Yeah, I mean, that's a good one. I mean, to summarize it, I don't ever use it unless I'm like doing a one-time task debugging messages, you know, debugging through storing states. Like one example, mm -hmm. a classic example of that is like, say you want to do IEXPRI or a breakpoint in your test suite, right? But the test suite runs in like a loop. The same line runs multiple times, right? But you want to pry only for a specific case. But you don't know what that case is at compile time. But when you're running, you know what that case is. For example, if ID is something, but ID is generated at runtime, right? So what you could do is, all right, in the IEX, I will pry right away, get the ID for which I need to pry. And in the compile time, I'll say, pry if process state is pry, right? And I would set that state manually in IEX if the ID is what I need it to be, to make it pry only once instead of a thousand times, right? Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. like weird cases like this where you might need global, like some kind of global state runtime makes sense. If you need it, you know, um, runtime not in a one-time scenario, I would use agents, right? But also only do that when it's a it's specific domain or, or gen server, right? If it's like, if the client server architecture is a bit more complex than just state. But yeah, process.put is just something I just would never use. What about you, Ellen? I was told never to use it and I just never use it. <laughs> so awesome. I try to keep, yeah, I mean, a lot of the work I do is really uh, request-based. It's not like long running. So, I mean, you just assign it to the socket or assign it to the controller uh, connection. And yeah, just let it be. Very few things I have which which could be used to it. I mean, in that case, yeah, I put it into some central gen server. I think I heard talk that they're going to be removing agents or something from Elixir. I, I remember Jose talking about this recently. Something about they're talking about agents really recently. I think they're, or maybe they're going to revise their documentation that they're going to stop talking about agents so much and point you over to gen servers. Have you guys seen this? Judging by Adi's disgusted not. face, I'm guessing not. <laughs> no, agents, I, I mean, that's, Okay, I mean that's fine. I I I, re I mean agents uses use Gen Server in the in the back end, right? But but uh, I just loved how simple it is to use agents to set up state. You know, it uh, the, the reason why I specifically brought up agents is because by using them, you're kind of eliminating the need to put it in a state in a ran in a random process, right? Okay. And if, if if you're if you're making an argument against Gen Server that it's too hard to set up, there's a lot of boilerplate work to do. Agents help you do that. Right. But yeah, it's weird that Jose is thinking about that. I'm sure someone will write a I'm, agents library. <laughs> I, I, I would be I would be surprised. This this sounds like a rumor to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not a, it's not a rumor. It's not a rumor. I see the tweet. So excuse me. I think I I said something and then I, I was more correct the second time, right? So if you go to Elixir Lang slash getting started talking about OTP, Jose specifically said this on the 24th of October. The current, well, this probably should be late on the 23rd because it's early in my time. The current plan is to remove the chapter on agents and jump straight into gen server and also remove the ETS bits and use the registry instead. Those are his exact words I just read. But this sounds like a, in the context of a specific project, not just like a general thing. No, not, not actually removing the code, but he's talking about removing the, in the guides for getting started in Elixir which is pretty interesting. Okay, I, I, I can see that it might make sense to to push people a bit earlier into the gen server land than, than into agent land because the, the I, I can I have observed that people who start out with Elixir, agent becomes kind of the hammer and everything is a nail. 
when it gets to process management. And there are use cases where an agent makes sense, but more often than not, you might actually be better off in, in, in building a gen server as long as, as soon as you have like some level of um, business logic attached, like non-trivial business logic attached to your state management, then a gen server is, in my opinion, always the better choice. There's not that many scenarios where an agent is, the, is superior to a gen server. There are some, but in general, I would say the gen server general is... Uh, so it's a more solid choice, let's say that. It's all, it always depends, right? So I, I could see what, why that makes sense. It's still a useful tool, though. Yeah, I, I feel like I think the one thing I initially did not like and also didn't totally understand what's the point of an agent for some time, because it, it's very strange, right? Because it is basically a gen server underneath, and you're sending the function to mutate the data. So it's definitely weirder. I just find it more clear if I write a gen server to begin with, because it's like you could start with an agent and then you'd probably want to upgrade to a gen server as time goes on. If you started this from a gen server, you would never need to upgrade to an agent because it's already a gen server and you can do whatever you want with it. And you get kind of more protection from that. Sending a function where it could do whatever, it seems a little bit more dangerous than describing and sending out specific API for a gen server saying, okay, do this and do that. And you cannot do these other things. Does that Makes sense. Adi looks a little bit confused. Yeah, I don't quite understand the last part. You said creating a function that does whatever. Can you elaborate? Okay, so if you look at it, if from, I haven't used agents for a while, right? But what I remember, let me know if I'm wrong because it's really been a while, is that you can send, you'd send a function to to the agent, like get an update, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever you change in there, like you can just send a function that will just return a, a random number, like 42. Mm -hmm. But if I instead make an, an API where it says, okay, I don't want to directly mutate this, but I can send it a message, which in turn will do whatever action I want it to do. Like I can, I can kind of restrict the API a little bit more, right? With the agent, right. you, as long as you send a function, it doesn't matter what it does as long as it obeys the rules. You can do whatever yeah, I mean, you want. That that's the whole point of agents, right? It's like it's all about setting state and updating state, right? Only for that. It's it's like not about control about any business logic or anything. Like that's not what it's meant for. I mean, I I use it quite heavily because it's just convenient for storing states. Uh, I, I I use gen servers too when I need to add something simple. But yeah, agents are basically it's the client side of gen server to store states. That's what it is, right? So it's like if you write wrote a gen server to store states and wrote the client side, not the server side, not the handle callbacks, that's what agent is. So I mean it's simple. If you want to replace with a gen server, just same module, keep you can still keep the agent functions, add a handle call. I had like a handle callbacks in the same module and it'll still work. You can still use gen server callbacks on an agent that you start because it's I mean, still the process. The yeah, it's it's still a gen server under the hood, right? Right, exactly. Um, yeah. The thing about like what, what I think Alan is also getting at is that um, the, the function, when you can say agent get, for example, you pass it a function, that, that function is actually sent to the agent and then executed in the context of the agent and then whatever responses is sent back. And there are some footguns there because anonymous functions capture the context in which they executed. So if you, for example, buy, like so one thing you might be doing is you have like a super big dictionary or whatever, or maybe even a big binary, and you want to do some of that work like in the context of a function like, hey, if it matches that thing, or if this field of this dictionary matches those things, then maybe do something else. And then basically you send alongside the, the function to the agent also this captured state, this big dictionary. And that's the kind of uh, a foot gun which, which can happen. Well, then you're using, using agents wrong, right? Yeah, but... 
Yeah, you're using agents wrong. You, you say yeah. that so easily, but there are these foot guns. People, especially who are starting out, they, they get nudged towards sure. agents. Yeah. And they definitely don't know about this. Like, I, I would never expect like an, somebody starting out on Elixir to be aware of this foot gun. <laughs> so, yeah, I can see why, why, why the, why, why they're saying, why, why Jose is saying that they maybe, like, agents, I don't think they plan on moving agents, but maybe not newbies, not as hard into the agent direction. I think it makes sense. Okay. Sure. Um, the come registry back to the part process. is really oh. interesting, though. Sorry, I, I've actually used the registry only for dynamic processes. We're using like the the one for one. I've never used it for anything else, but I am aware that you can also use it as a as a pub sub, which is interesting. Yeah, you can do. Yeah, there's there's even things the, I know about. In the documentation, there's part about the registry where they say, "Hey, you can use this as a simple pub sub thing." I have not done it myself, but yeah, I can see it being useful for that. Yeah, I think it's called like dispatch, right? That's yeah, what, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. How do we end up at the registry? <laughs> because because that's also what he talked about too, which is kind of removing ETS, which is one of the high level chapters on getting started OTP, and put the registry there, right? Oh, okay. That's why yeah, we're talking I see, about this. I see, I see now. Also remove the ETS bits and use the registry instead. I'm not sure if I'm a fan of that because ETS is really it's really ETS is nice. ETS is a powerful tool. But maybe I'm too too much into the words to to see the force or trees. The reasoning seems opposite. Of agents events over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it yeah. contradicts that. So, huh. well, this is not meant to be a Jose dunking episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, maybe circle back <laughs> to the to uh, we kind of kind of left process dictionary uh, discussion up in the air as if some state we never cleaned up. See what I did there? Huh? Huh? Like that. I like that. <laughs> Um, I w- because I actually want to give one example of where I did use process dictionaries. And I, first of all, I agree with Alan and Adi. So number rule of process dictionary, don't use it. Number two of process dictionary, don't use it. Number three of process dictionaries. If you have meta information, uh, runtime meta information, you might want to drag along and you don't want to pollute your functions with it. Then maybe use process dictionary. And that is the use case I want to I mention because we were... That was way before open telemetry was a thing, or telemetry in general. That that thing didn't, didn't those things didn't exist back then. And we set up uh, some tracing integration into our uh, event-driven system, like event source system. I already mentioned a few times on the show, and we wanted to basically pass along the tracing, the span IDs to the event uh, emitting logic so it could add that as meta information so that like event consumers could attach themselves as like auto start spans and say hey the span of this id is the parent you know and that's meta information that's completely orthogonal to the actual business logic at hand the business logic at hand doesn't care about tracing like not at all and so we were left at this point where we, okay we, we, we have this information we have this meta information and we want to pass it along to this event emitting logic but we don't want to pollute our business logic right? because we would have to add it to every kind of business logic function to drag it along you know so that is when we use the process dictionary where we put in post okay put here this tracing span id and then we fetched it from there in the event emitting logic and said, okay, now add it to the metadata. And that worked really nicely, but it still feels hacky. <laughs> it felt it felt weird because it is kind of akin to like a global-ish variable, like on the process level state. But this is the one scenario where we'll be saying something like that, the process dictionary usage in production is um, is. Is reasonable, and from what I've also heard, uh, we had like a, one time we had an episode with um, 
I forgot his name. Oh. But like somebody who is building the Erlang client for open telemetry. And he basically also said, like, hey, this is kind of the, the main use. This is like the idea behind the process dictionary, this kind of information. Yeah. Quick question. I like guess same problem, right? You're spawning multiple processes that are not linked. How would you ensure that the same trace ID goes into those all those processes that you're spawning? At that point, you need to be explicit. Then, like you, right. when you when you spawn them, you do have to send maybe like as the, a metadata the trace thing. ID itself. Yeah, yeah, and say here metadata. Here's the trace ID, and then I would expect those processes again to take it and put it in the right. Dictionary. So, like Got that's it. like where, where, you, where you need to. So spawn again. link, spawn link with trace. Awesome. Yeah, kind of. Got it. The, the that, nice that, thing, what happened then is like also like on our, on our we were using, I forgot, Z, 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 something with Z, this is tracing visualization thing called something with Z. Oh, I forgot it. But you could actually then see like we, we see like this the main span, right, for the web request that started, that ended, and then like these event consuming spans down there. It was, it was beautiful, seriously. <laughs> it was so useful also to... Sometimes when you when we had misbehaving events or things which were consuming over and over again, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, there you can see it in the span. It's like consuming and consuming and consuming and consuming. The span is just gigantic. The trace is gigantic. So that was that was really nice. But yeah, like I said, first rule, don't use it. Second rule, don't use it. Third rule, maybe for runtime meta information. Yeah. So I guess let's let's try to like I would love to like uh like summarize that. So like I think why is process dictionary a good thing to use there? Why couldn't we use agents? Because I guess it it was state specific to the process, right? Um, exactly. It wasn't like a random state, a random variable that you're storing that that's required for execution of the function. It's very clear that the trace belongs to a process. Like that association was very clear and that's why it made sense to use process dictionary over an agent. I guess you could still use an agent and if, or a gen server with a key hid to trace but it'd just be longer, harder to maintain that way. Uh, that's you, why I guess... You also get into the risk of building yourself a bottleneck, you know, like, I mean, right. it, the easiest thing would be to use yeah. then one gen server but then you have like a natural bottleneck in the system. Right, exactly. And... You'll slow it down. Yep, makes sense. Yeah, easiest to get. It's also like easiest to get state from the current process. So, yeah, totally makes sense. Uh, I think this is a good one. So, like, anything that's associated with the process which also you won't be changing that often. That's also key, right? Something that you don't change that often is a good candidate for process dictionary. And, and also I would add, and which is orthogonal to your business logic, like where your business logic doesn't yeah. really care about it because right. this is a purely runtime concern. Yeah. It's just like an observability scenario which which helps you in understanding your system. But the business logic like really doesn't care about this. Like right. not at all. <laughs> right, right. Yep, awesome. I like using process dictionary for that use case, actually. I think it's, you said it doesn't feel right, but I actually think it might be the yeah, best. I mean, I meant yeah. mainly like, it, it made sense to do it, but it felt off in the sense of like, this feels like I'm using global state. I feel dirty. Right. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, there is a global state. as a variable for every function too. You could do that too, but. Yeah, that, that was it, the alternative. And that, yeah, that, that, it just too much, yeah, too much work, yeah. So like, any other anti-patterns you've seen and like, especially in the OTP context? And I think Adi, you already hinted at some other things you ranted about earlier. So maybe Alan, do you have any seen maybe legacy code bases or something where you feel like, what the heck were they thinking? Like where somebody clearly did not grok yet what OTP is kind of trying to achieve? Because I, I, I've seen things like that. I mean, the classic one is this gen server as a bottleneck, but it was one big gen server everybody's talking to. That's the classic anti-pattern, but any any other little tidbits? I wish I could come up with something specific at the moment, but I'm still working with a pretty young guy on a project, and uh, he's very he's very eager to to code stuff, right? 
And I feel like he kind of codes things quicker than actually thinking about it because he has like, you know, he's got the idea, right? But he doesn't have the syntax down. So he kind of gets these weird things that he does. And I, and I get a little bit confused because I'm like, what is it you're trying to do? And sometimes I look at it, I know what he's trying to do, but I'm just trying to think about something that I saw recently that really like confused the heck out of me, but kind of made sense on his side. Yeah, I'm sorry. Nothing's coming to my mind, but I, I wish something would come. But I just think about that. Like there's just some things that are a little bit weird in uh, Elixir that is a little bit hard to explain to some people. I mean, I think kind of sticking to that new people topic, right? Live view is a little bit confusing to a lot of people, right? Because it's not very linear with like these handle events and, and mounting and all this kind of stuff. That's something that I try to explain to to new people and, and they get really confused. Now with the Heek syntax and creating new components that are, you know, dumb components or non-live dead ones, or, it also gets a little bit confusing to some people too because you can just make up attributes on the fly that in turn will generate new things. You guys know what I'm talking about? These the new Heek style with the the dead the dead components, or you call them? I call them dead yeah. because they're not like the live components, right? I have to admit, like I, I've been keeping up to date on the developments there. I've not yet used any of those fancy new things. <laughs> so shame on me. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm excited because I wanted to let you know about this thing that I pulled together that I had just, I've been dying to have this for years and I never felt like I could. And then I just realized that there's no reason why I can't. So um, I'm putting together a book club and we're going to read development focused books, career books, you know, uh, technical books, whatever. The first book that we're going to do is going to be Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob Martin. If you're not familiar with Clean Code or some of the other stuff that Bob has done, check that out. I've also talked to him on the Clean Coders podcast, which is on Top End Devs. But uh, yeah, we're going to get on. He's going to show up to some of our meetings. And what I'm thinking is we'll probably have like five or six people uh, part of the conversation along with Bob and I at the same time. And we'll just, uh, so somebody can come on, they can ask their question and then and we'll just ro- rotate people through. So we'll, we'll mute one person, unmute another person when it's their turn to come on and, and be part of the discussion. So we'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half. And then the other part of it that I'm putting together is just kind of a meet and greet gather area on gather town. And so after the, the meetup and the call, what we'll do is we'll all go over to Gather Town and you can just log in, walk up to a group and have a conversation. And that way we can all kind of get to know each other and and make friends and and get to know people across the world. Uh, one thing that I'm finding is that, yeah, the meetups are starting to come back, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to a meetup. And I really want to meet you guys and talk to you. So we're going to put all that together. It'll all be part of that book club. You can go to topendevs.com slash book club to be part of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The first book club meeting will be in December, the beginning of December. We're starting the first week of December. And um, you'll also be part of the conversation about which book we do next. I have one in mind, but I want to see where everybody's at. So there you go. Yeah, it's really cool. Like, I I like the idea. Like, it's kind of like we're going from, oh, I have to do this. So I have to like paste boilerplate, right? Boilerplate HTML. Now we're at a point where we can say, okay, we put these not boiler, it's like semantic HTML now, right? With these kind of new styles. It's nice, but at the same time, it's like, maybe this page doesn't exactly work like that. Like, I don't want this thing here. And so you kind of have to say, like, now we're back to the same thing that we were trying not to do, which is like, okay, I don't want to repeat. I want it to be clear what I'm doing. But at the same time, sometimes I don't want something that should be in most pages, right? So then you end up hacking your way in. Like, okay, if I add this attribute or if I set this thing to false, I want to turn off all these different things. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, at a high level. 
Yeah, I, I don't have a specific example, like, but yeah, there's some stuff that I'm still a little bit confused on, like slots. Have you guys tried using render slot yet? No. Okay, slots are cool. Um, so for instance, I made like a like a panel component, and when you mouse over it, it's going to have like a tool tip that comes up. So I have a tool tip slot. But the only issue is that I haven't found an easy way to say like, okay, if I don't add a tool tip, what to do? So then I had this weird problem where like I'd mouse over it and the tool tip came up, but it was empty. But it's not really empty because it has like space because like when you have a slot and it's empty, it still has something there. It's not actually nil. It's a little bit weird to explain, but... Uh, what is a slot? Yeah, a slot. Yeah. So you have this render what, slot. What thing. is a slot? What is a slot? It's kind of like like optional HTML. So let's say that you have a, like I think the example that I often see is like a modal and say that your modal could just have one phrase like error happened. And then like you can mm -hmm. say like, okay, press okay to close it, right? But then you may have another, you may want to reuse that modal template to maybe have like a paragraph talking more about what actually happened. And so you can have an optional slot that if you put in the put in stuff there, it'll be all styled up with whatever you want, right? I guess maybe I'm not doing a very good job explaining it. No, I'm trying to understand. So it's it's basically another way you can make yeah. your Heeks dynamic on top of components and other stuff. It's just another way you can make it dynamic. I'm trying to understand where you would use that over. Let like me a, let me actually send you something because I think this is yeah. a good example. So for render slot, they show an example, right? So you have a high-level component called table, and then you can add many columns, and the colon cowl is basically a slot. And so within that slot, you would have uh, user.name for the first one and user.address for the second one. Mm -hmm. And so you could have many of these different slots, and all these slots are styled up a certain way. Got it. I will still have to understand this. It's uh, I don't see where you're declaring the slot you're rendering as a column. I don't see that in the... You know, down like part of the... you'll, you'll see that. Do, do we want to continue talking about slots? No, no, <laughs> no, I'm so sorry. I, I have to control my curiosity. Thanks for sharing it out, and I will definitely check it out. And slots are uh, a little bit annoying, right? Yeah, they're. I, need I to mean, use it, them some more. yeah, I yeah, I feel like the new Phoenix Live has so many things that I honestly just didn't need to use most of it. But I would, yeah, which, which is why I'm like I'm a little behind on some of the new uh, stuff over here. But speaking of Live View and speaking of OTP, one of the things that I always, uh, it like surprisingly get a, gets like a good reaction from a lot of mid-level and junior engineers is like when you share your screen, click on the mount function and cl or click on, you know, any of the handle callbacks. It's so easy to figure out it's just a gen server, <laughs> right? Sorry, Alan, tying this back to the OTP very in a very smooth way. But <laughs> yeah, it's... Smooth, it's... <laughs> Eddie, smooth. <laughs> but anyway, I, I have, I mentor a few people outside of my work and like every time, like one of my first instincts is like, if they have a question, how does this work? I share my screen, click on the code and like look at it, it's written there. But I think the reaction when they realize, oh, it's obvious, just simply a gen server. That's it, right? I mean, there's uh, minor things going on outside of the callback, but like it, the whole client of architecture remains, and it's 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 it just makes live view so simple for people to like. It's more it makes it more accessible for them to like look at the code and try to understand how it works. Because best way to learn how something works is just look at their code, look at its code, right? So I don't know, you might want to try that with your new hire as well. <laughs> but here's the other thing too: is you also have to explain to people what is a gen server which is not so simple to explain because you have to explain processes. Now, what's a process, right? Now, imagine talking to somebody. All they do is procedural programming with Python or right. JavaScript. Okay, let's just stick to Python only because I have an actual example with that one. To explain to them what is a gen server where events come in and you're sending messages, it just does not compute. It's really hard to explain. Yeah. I think, So, yeah. Ellen, wait, Ellen, what's a gen server? 
Man, I don't even know what the hell is a Hello World program at this point, to be honest, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to even explain what a gen server is. It's a, it's a process that waits for messages and can sometimes send back replies. I don't even know how to even say it. It's, it's yeah. hard to say because they're very complicated, yet they're also simple at the same time, right? Because right. all that stuff right in the hood is really amazing, right? Yeah, I think one of the things I do with like new Elixir people, I, I mean, I ask them to read the Elixir in action. It explains all of the first few chapters of this explains it so well. Using spawn, using receive blocks, right, without actually doing gen server makes them really understand how Elixir works and what processes mean in Elixir, right, in OTP. Like the idea that a process can have an infinitely recursive function running without stack overflow that literally just receives messages. That is what you have to understand first. Because Gen Server is simplified version of that, right? It creates an interface for you to build a process that does exactly that. The the whole tail called recursion optimization that allows a process just I'm just gonna run this function that just receives messages. That's a process in our line, right? That's what it is. It's not a logic. It's it's a logical process. It's not a physical process, right? That that's something that not everyone gets right away. Which I think Erlang, I, I can't I can't remember if it's OTP in action or was Elixir in action. I think I think both do a very good job explaining that. But that's like first two or three chapters of that like creates like a good overall understanding of Elixir and Beam. And then I also recommend doing the little Elixir and OTP guidebook, which kind of like has a lot of exercises for them to understand how things work. Then if you understand how a process works in Elixir, it's not too long of a line to draw from a process to a gen server, which is like a, you know, like a standard way everyone has, everyone has accepted. We're going to define a long running process, right? Yeah, but it's also interesting too to see how many other languages and frameworks do have a similar idea Right. So, Go. I, well, I mean, I Go, yeah. Go is a good example. It's a great example. Aussie Sharp with Akka. Yeah. Okay. But that's basically, let's, let's not count that one because it's basically the guy wrote Akka for Java because he couldn't do Erlang. That's what I understand where Akka came from. And yeah. C Sharp, I mean, you know, they copied off of Java or whatever, whatever you want to call it. The Dart, which powers Flutter, they have an idea called Isolate, which is basically a copy of also Erlang, built into the, the language itself, not like an added-in library like Akka. It's actually built into the language. Tokyo, which is the, which I think everybody here has been playing around with Rust a little bit. Tokyo is basically the async framework runtime for Rust, has a very similar thing where they run also a schedulers with lightweight processes. So like, I don't know, I don't know if Beam necessarily did all these things with uh, everything, but a lot of languages actually have this idea too. So it's, it's quite interesting to see. And I think even like GIL lock languages like Python stuff also do something kind of similar because you don't really have true threading. So you don't get like multi-core stuff, but you do have things like G-Event, which will allow you to like do multi, multi-processing, multi-threading, but only with IO, which is interesting. I don't know half the things you mentioned here, concurrency libraries. I do know that I think the logical processes, yes, there are languages that do that. I think the logical processes with the way Erlang does it with message passing, that's rare. That's why I think Go is very close with the communicate, communicating sequential processes part, right? But it's not quite what Erlang does. Like they don't quite have a message queue that processes read through. You know, it's like, it's, I think that whole, I, I don't know of a, another, another language that does it exactly like Beam does. You know, I know there's like a written, stuff written in Haskell 
that that are actor models, but actor model doesn't necessarily mean the message passing logical processes, right? So, yeah, yeah, I, I have tried doing concurrency with Haskell, Rust. Rust is very weird because it has so many ways of doing things concurrency, right? But the one that comes with it, the thread with send and sync, that's completely based on mutable state, right? The, the sync part, especially, that's very different from er, er, Erlang. So anyway, I, I think that's where Erlang is so cool, where you have all these like abstractions around things that can take requests for you without even knowing the context of the request, right? And you also have a nice interface to load context into the request, right? Into them. I mean, you can make RPCs. You can uh, you can pass messages between processes, but the the way message will be processed within that process is completely independent of your overall program overall application that's running that's so cool that makes the overall idea of process so lightweight which is why again going back to the initial problem we started talking about it was so weird that they used a process to store state that tied to the business logic right it's like goes against what how you're supposed to use process in Erlang. it basically binds the behavior of your program to the way you run it right which is right and it's Erlang is supposed to be opposite of that yeah yeah, 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 yeah. well <laughs> so maybe maybe another question for you. I mean, maybe I, I kind of asked that just now, Adam, right? But what, what are some anti-patterns you've also seen? I, maybe to elaborate on what I said earlier, I think the classic one really is this one gen service we rule them all, right? Like every program in your every process in on, on your Beam instance communicates with the same gen server, which creates this natural bottleneck. So in the beginning, it might be fine. I listen to the, it's like a classic scenario of like if you run it locally, works fine. If you run it maybe in staging with a few number of users, works fine. Then you put it in production and it breaks <laughs> because this process is not able to handle the number of messages coming in. Um, so and that is that is something I've, I've built that myself when I was learning Elixir and when I was learning OTP because I didn't understand the implications of, of this one process handling all of that. Uh, it was in this case, it was not such a big deal because um, like it was in a part of the system which didn't get that much traffic. And one of our senior engineers also reviewed it and was like, yeah, you might not want to do it. But I think in this particular case, also because we want to ship it well, sooner rather than later, it's okay. But this is like one of these, these, these pitfalls, these foot guns. I'm not even sure you pick up on easily if you don't necessarily read a book which specifically mentions that because i i i, I correct me if i'm wrong i can't remember any part of documentation talking about this particular anti-pattern so maybe any other anti-patterns you have seen Ali, as from people who maybe i don't understand otp yeah uh, as well yet yeah i think in general i think uh it's for even senior engineers to keep the think of gen server any processes in elixir anything that stores data as a database, right? Like cap theorem still is valid, you know? Like you need, if, if you are building a high availability system that you were mentioning, right? So actually you want response from a gen service quickly, you do need multiple gen service. Well, gen stage makes it quite easy for you to spawn multiple uh, processes and you can monitor like a primary gen server that other, uh, other processes monitor and like replicate the state. There will be replication lag, but you know, it comes at the cost of consistency, right? Depending on which uh, gen server finally gets a call. So I think that isn't very obvious to everyone. Like when working with gen servers, like one gen server to rule them all is, you're right, a very common pattern. So I think another one is uh, using, or, or, or I mean, honestly, like replicating what uh, gen state would be doing. 
you know, like manually creating multiple gen servers and like uh, dispatching requests to multiple gen servers because that, that's exactly what gen stage is for. So that's another common one. One that I mentioned, I guess, before we started recording was, I just don't, uh, this is one of the, another thing that I don't know why. Uh, maybe you guys can figure out why someone would try to do this. Uh, if a process A wants to communicate with process B, all the communication was going through C. So process A was sending a message to C and B was monitoring and replicating all C's messages. I did not understand the reasoning behind it. You know, like, yeah, I, I don't know if you guys can think of a reason why someone want to do it, do it this way. Not without more context. Maybe <laughs> I, there was a good re- good enough reason in the, like, the history of building things, you know, like the right. system evolved and then it ended up at this point and nobody... That, took a step that was, back and was like, yeah. wait, this doesn't make any sense anymore. I think right. that's like a scenario I could see because I've, I've seen my fair share of code which ends up looking and you're like, this doesn't make no, this doesn't make no sense, you know? Right. Uh, but then you understand how it came to be and you re- understand at least why it ended up being this way, even if it's still nonsensical. <laughs> right, right. I think you might be onto something. I think the process B part was already built where how it would the business logic wasn't process B. They want to separate which process reacts to the state changes, but that's what Gen Server is for, right? Like if if process B is has modules loaded that respond to state, you just build a Gen Server out in the store state and process B itself. Wait, I can I can see one potential reason. Um was process A waiting for responses from this process C? Or yeah. Was it, yeah well, okay. it, it then, wasn't. It then, wasn't. It wasn't. Oh, it, it, was, wasn't, right? it was casting. It was casting. It was just casting, yeah. Okay, then then no. <laughs> because if it was calling, then I could maybe see, okay, process C, maybe there's like something lightweight of a message. It's just cute. Like it's a poor man's queue, you know? Like where maybe the operation of process B is like so long running. <laughs> right. That it's like, okay, we don't want to block process A, so we have this process C in between as like a, as a buffer, kind of. But know? you don't need that in Elixir. Or you don't need that in Beam at all. If, 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 if you do call, then potentially. But sure, get it. I get it. It, was, it wasn't, but response at C would be just okay anyway. So it's, call is like effectively a cast yeah. at that point, right? Yeah. So I see what he's saying, but in Erlang, it doesn't make sense because it's just so much more work for nothing. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I said, probably something which which grew organically over time right. and ended up being this way, and nobody took took the time or had the the cap- mental mental capacity to to take a step back and say, "Wait, what are we doing?" <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe you you know you remove this thing. You know, you ever seen a line of code that says, "Don't remove this line of code"? You think is like innocuous. Yeah. You remove it, and then everything falls apart. So maybe there's there's something here. That's the this the what do you call that? The mesh stick that holds up the uh, entire <laughs> yeah. entire building. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Again, I, I heard this story secondhand from an engineer who recently joined that company. So, but it, again, it's very surprising that these kind of things happen. But I guess it sheds some light on why the community also tends to say and, and push this notion of you have understood OTP when you start to think about the application in the context of like how might the supervision tree look like right because at that point you're really considering okay what are some what are things which need to run in separate processes what can run together in the same processes do i need do i need any like do i need to spin up multiple processes for this thing over there or is like one enough right and if this way of thinking has not really yet i don't know being grokked by somebody starting out then i can very can can see how 
how somebody who might still have to deal with processes because it's maybe the system already did it before, right? Uh, ends up doing these things because like they don't really understand the impact of the changes. And to be honest, I, I don't blame them. Like OTP is a really cool piece of technology and I really enjoy using it, but it takes a bit of, uh, you have to wrap your head around it first. <laughs> Totally, totally, yeah. Um, and I, I, I want to give like a very quick example of how cool OTP is. So the startup that I'm leaving, we scaled a suite of applications. Um, just simple Heroku deployment architecture, you pay like less than a thousand a month for our entire architecture, entire infrastructure. We scaled 60,000 concurrent requests. <laughs> Three horizontally scaled instances of Elixir application. If it was Ruby on Rails, if it was Node, it was... Anything else, you would need 20, 25, 60, 60,000 concurrent requests, right? With an SLA of like 300 milliseconds. Yeah, we did not uh, uh, exceed our P95. It was still 300 milliseconds. And uh, we had some read replicas going, obviously, because it was read heavy. But from like an application layer, we didn't have to create many horizontal early, horizontally skilled instances because just, that's the power of OTP. Yeah, that, that reminds me of this. I once was in an application process at this like this German company, which also had like a fair level of of of, of scale. I'm not going to say any names here, but um, they were actually hosting all their stuff on like not on like on a classic cloud or Heroku offering, but they basically off outsourced it to another company, which is like, hey, this is our artifact with a Docker container. Please, please run it for us and 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 keep it like with us SLAs, right? And they, this 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 other company was usually running Ruby on Rails applications. They were like, he told me that, 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 that this guy these guys were always like like oh it's kind of laughing about the kind of scale their Elixir application was handling compared to all the other Ruby stuff they were running. <laughs> so yeah, it's crazy, man. I mean, as long as you have your database and other external stuff taken care of, right? As long as you have like proper re replicas, a queue for writes, whatever. If as long as they have other things external to Elixir taken care of. It's crazy the scale that it can handle. I think Discord said, right, like five instances, a million users. That's crazy. That's crazy. It's like now it's like 2018. I think it's when they wrote that article. So, yeah, that's it's crazy. Okay, folks. Any any last words? Any any final remarks on how not to use OTP? I guess <laughs> except for our, always that kinda, famous kinda famous tangent. thing where you. We treat like uh, objects, like processes, etc. Right, but I think like that one's been over talked about by everybody. Which I still never seen that in the wild, but I always hear about this one. Process oriented programming. Exactly. Yeah. Have you actually seen that before in the wild? I have not. Uh, I mean, I guess you can say the example that I gave is kind of that, <laughs> right? Yeah, kind of. Like if yeah. you use a process diction, yeah, I can, I can see it. I yeah. can see it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, Alan, if if you want to do that, you can always use the OOP library, right? Like, there's an OOP library for Elixir. Oh yeah. I'm not even joking. It's done by Jose, right? And no, it's not by Jose. It's I by, thought he did do uh, something similar like that a long time ago when he first started working on Elixir. I think he was working because you have to understand he went from Ruby, but, where yeah, everything we, is an object, yeah. to Elixir, it, right? It's by Wojtek Mach. So probably probably bought that. Oh, name, but that sounds familiar. Yeah. So yeah, uh, there's like this library where you can import OOP and then you can create a classes and you can do inheritance. <laughs> you can do everything like that. You can do multiple inheritance because who want want to do multiple inheritance? Yeah, it's a obvious. Maybe that now for for the record, it's a joke library. I mean, the, yeah. at the very end, it basically says, please don't use this. <laughs> but 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 it's a pretty good joke if you ask me. Yeah. 
I mean, I mean, but I think Elixir and Erlang is just like I think the need for object oriented gets minimized, obviously, with like process and states, like, how easy it is to create. Yeah, I don't see myself using an object oriented language for something uh, unless I'm like forced to use it in a company. I don't see myself doing that with all the new languages existing. And I, I always like I'm sure like you guys know this code, like Joe Armstrong, right? Creative Erlang, like uh, it's 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 like object oriented. If it's functional programming, if you want a banana, you get a banana. But, but object oriented, if you want a banana, you get a monkey holding the banana and the entire jungle, right? <laughs> It's it's it's. I love that. I love that quote. What about also one interesting thing is like Joe Armstrong basically said that uh, Erlang is possibly the only object oriented. Yeah, language. the true in, one, the true yeah, one, in, right? In, in, <laughs> if you consider what like Alan Kay kind of was thinking right. of when he came up with object oriented, then arguably Erlang is way more object oriented. Than yeah, but yep. typical object oriented language out there. Right. I had something I wanted to bring up. Remember what it was now? Maybe it'll come back to me after the show. I hate that. Okay, then I'm just gonna. Cut you off here, Alan. Brutal me. And transition us to picks. Have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are? I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. I'd try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and, and really wanted to, you know, talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a, a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right? Where you can get on, you can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, the rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. Well, we'll cover all of it, okay? And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular, Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on something for 10 minutes that's related, to, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current and keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The, the full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. So, Adi, what are your picks for this week? Yeah, I guess uh, I've been since I've been unemployed, I've been uh, playing some video games. Did I pick God of War Ragnarok? Even if I did, I finished it recently. It's a great game. It's the game of the year according to me, better than Elden Ring according to me. So go ahead, buy it, play it. It's such an immersive experience. There's at least four or five instances where you get goosebumps because of the story. It's amazing. And it's such a great conclusion to you know the whole Norse mythology saga. So if you're interested there, go play God of War, Ragnarok. And second, another video game, Controversial. I fall in the category of people who actually do like the new Pokemon games. 
Pokemon Scarlet and Violet are awesome. If you guys are any in any spectrum of Pokemon fans, you should try it out. Except I haven't played a Pokemon game since Sapphire. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good game. That's a good game. But it's like also really, really old now. Twenty? Thirty years? Maybe not. But like kind of like that. On, on the maybe it is twenty. I think about about yeah, seventeen, eighteen years old. Yeah. Good gosh, I'm old. <laughs> Alan, what are your picks? Any Rust books? I haven't had a Rust book for a long time, but I do. Yes, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm kind of. I have this need, and it's not fulfilled. He went to Berlin. I think he did some interesting things there. Uh, yeah, they, they they involved clever and techno. That's that's what we already established. Uh, they have no idea what we're talking about before the show. Yep. So I just that's a good <laughs> So Dart is kind of like a weird language because it's like yeah I don't, I don't even know how to say it, but it people only use really use it for Flutter. But there is a, a really interesting web framework that came out by these guys called Very Good Ventures called Dirt Frog. The name is a little bit weird, but what's really interesting is I guess I can call it like a file structure configured system where, you know, like in Rails, you have to put like files in certain places. So imagine that, but basically there's no router .ex or .rb. There's no like central point like of starting the application. There's just a single routes folder and you drop a file in for every single route. And there's only one, fug- one, only one function every single folder that just handles the request. It's very weird. I don't know. Like I kind of like it, but I also kind of don't like it because it's not very explicit at all. You know, like in Elixir, like, everything's a function. You can kind of follow what's going on. This one doesn't have something like that. So I just think it's very weird. And I'm kind of curious just to play with it. I've only been looking at it for like about a half hour and a half in total. I haven't installed it, I haven't tried it, but just watched a video about it and read through the documentation. I thought it's very interesting. So I thought you guys should come and check it out. It's 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 pretty interesting, right? Just by how I describe it is basically what I said. There's only a folder full of routes and that's it. It's very weird. So that's it, my it, pick it does kind of sound like the idea of serverless, but without serverless. Like, you know, if you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Just there, I, I know there you mean. also have like a one file of like a function which gets the request and then it Yeah, exactly. Interesting, let's say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, but, like, imagine, like, you know how you have, like, a, a folder, like, blogs, right, or blog posts, and you have, you know, like, slash ID, right? Well, you'd have a slash, you'd have a folder called blogs, and then a file called id.dart, but the name id would actually have brackets around it. So having brackets is what designates the variable name for that dynamic parameter. It's it's really weird. Okay. Yeah, exactly. It's very you're weird. weird. You're into weird shit, Alan. Yeah, you can say that. Not as weird as techno, though. <laughs> I don't like techno, to be honest. <laughs> okay, then it's my turn. I'm going to pick... What should I pick first? Like the developer pick first, the nerd pick, or the self-promotion pick? I'm going to let you choose, Ali. Self-promotion. Okay. And I'm going to pick again, because I can. The XUnit library I built, it's published, it's out there, it works. Uh, I just pushed out a release which fixes some dialyzer issues because I knew I forgot something and that was it. <laughs> so now the dialyzer, ty- generative type specs also work. Dialyzer is part of the CI pipeline now, so that should not happen again. I'm glad you um, reminded me. Uh, I have to open a PR for that 1% uh, code coverage thing that needs to be addressed, so I'll yeah, do that. <laughs> happy, happy to do that, man, because like code coveralls kind of tells me, oh, sorry, I can't tell you. If I run locally, it says 100%, but if I run it in the cloud, it says 89%. I was like, what the fuck 98. is happening? 98%. 98%, yeah. It's so weird. But yeah, um, so that, that, that is out there. Please throw it out. It's just to summarize, again, it's like union types for Elixir in like 
the most elixir way possible I could think of. So it really tries to get out of your hair, but gives you all the tools necessary to model your types. I personally think it's a cool thing. You should try it out. Let me know what you think. Um, then I'm going to go with a nerd pick. The nerd pick is I recently finished... No, I recently got a PS5 and I finished Returnal. And Returnal is, if you ask me, a great game. There is a lot of critique because it's basically a roguelike. So like you die over and over and over and restart. And runs can get very long, like one to potentially even three hours long. So it can be very frustrating when you die. For me, it was perfect because I usually have these evening gaming slots, which are like two-ish, maybe a bit more hours. So I was like playing one run and I died. And I was like, okay, done for today. Next, next, next day, next run. So for me, that worked nicely. But if you're somebody who more binges, then I can definitely see how this might very much frustrate you. So fair warning there. Plus one for Eternal. Great game. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Also kind of interesting what they do with the story. Yeah, without spoiling anything. And then I'm going to pick the, my, my, my businessy dev kind of career tip is a book or slash, it's actually also a webcomic, The Goal. And The Goal is a book actually from the automobile industry and it's about process optimization. optimization. Um, there's also a book which is more focused with the same idea on IT, which is Rolling Rocks Downhill. I have not read that, so that's supposedly also a good thing. Why I'm, why I'm suggesting it, it, it's basically what kind of introduced the whole idea of like theory of constraints. And theory of constraints is in its core very simple. It basically says if you have a complex system and you have value streams running through these systems, it doesn't really matter. You can optimize in a bunch of places, but as long as you don't optimize where the bottleneck of that system is, the output is not going to improve. That's the core idea. And theory of constraints is basically about figuring out where's the bottleneck, then kind of, oh, I'm missing a word here, but putting everything be like under the bottleneck, making the bottleneck the number one thing to look at, and then elevating that bottleneck to improve your system, and then rinse and repeat. And, and the, the goal is kind of a novel about where they follow this idea and improve, like, I'm missing words today, good gosh, where they improve fictitious process but it's built like it's it's based on real world things and real world uh, stories. And it's this whole theory of constraints thing has been like blowing my mind <laughs> the more I learn about it because it's so simple and it's also at the root of a lot of what's basically a root of what, what Agile is trying to do, a root of like what DevOps is trying to do. Um, it's a very powerful thing to be honest, and I'm I'm, I'm really digging more into that at the moment. So yeah, the goal that's my my dev slash career slash process, whatever pick. Okay, that's it for this week. Anything you would like to add, Alan, Ari, before we say goodbye? Everybody gives me a thumbs up, okay? Then, thank you for listening, folks, and tune in next time when we have another episode of Elixir Mix. Bye! Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.